This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Koto Katoa and welcome to Cawthron Radio. I'm Natalie Bird, a Senior Communications Advisor here at Cawthron Institute and I've been hosting this show since the beginning of 2021. Our goals have been to share some of the cutting-edge world-leading science that Cawthron is doing right here in Nelson, New Zealand. We're also keen to share the stories of our researchers and their work because stories give meaning and context and help people to connect with what we're doing and why we're doing it. So if you're a listener and you would like to hear us share specific stories that you haven't heard, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and share some of your ideas with us. We'd love to hear from you. In this show, I'm changing things up a little bit, and instead of interviewing someone, I'm going to share snippets of some of the keynote addresses delivered at the annual Thomas Cawthron Memorial Lectures over the past few years. The Thomas Cawthron Memorial Lecture is a free annual community event held by Cawthron for the people of Te Ihu to celebrate the legacy of Thomas Cawthron and to share some of our science with the public. For the first time in 2020, in response to the global COVID-19 pandemic, the lecture was held virtually, which helped to make the event accessible to everyone, and Dr Susie Wiles featured. She was instrumental in New Zealand's public response to COVID-19 and was an excellent science communicator, so that was a fantastic event, and you can still view that lecture online. Over the years, we've had many distinguished scientists and scholars share their knowledge on a wide range of subjects. These speakers have included Sir Edmund Hillary, Sir Ernest Rutherford, Professor Lord Robert Winston, the list goes on. So as we're quietly preparing behind the scenes to announce this year's speaker, we've been reflecting back on the amazing addresses delivered previously, and we wanted to share them with you. The great thing is that if you enjoy these snippets, you can listen to the full speeches, or watch the full speeches rather, on Cawthron's Vimeo account. And we'll plan to share these links ourselves via website and Facebook so you can find them more easily. The first snippet is from a 2019 annual lecture speech given by Cawthron's Dr Susie Wood, a senior scientist with expertise in microalgae and algal biotechnology. So very few New Zealanders know just how many lakes we have. We have over 3,800 lakes. And the blue dots on this map show the location of each of those. And these lakes are so incredibly special. And probably more so than anywhere else in the world, we have this amazing diversity of lakes within such a confined geographic space. So from our largest lake, Lake Taupo, over 600 square kilometres in size in the central North Island, to our deepest lake, Lake Hiroko, over 460 metres deep down in Southland, to our alpine lakes, some of them nestled at over 2,000 metres in altitude in the mountains. And these lakes have been created by volcanoes, earthquakes, landslides, glacial retreat, uh, and much more. And so it's a, it's a real privilege to be a research scientist working on our lakes. And one of the first things I do when I arrive at a lake is, is I walk down to the edge of the lake and I look down into the water and I look at the clarity of the water. And my scientific brain kicks into action and I'm immediately assessing and thinking about what organisms live in the lake and why. And once this initial assessment is done, my eyes go upwards and they start to scan the land around the lake. And what I'm doing is I'm exploring, I'm looking for clues to help me understand why the lake is in its current condition. That was Cawthron's Dr Susie Wood. I love Susie's complete passion for her work. You can really tell that she lives and breathes it. Our next snippet is from the same 2019 lecture, featuring the keynote speaker Professor Gideon Henderson, 
a professor of earth sciences at the University of Oxford. There are something like 62,000 power stations around the world, quite a lot of power stations, and it's still true that 80% of the energy that we rely on globally comes, as in this example, from the burning of fossil fuels. Here this is a coal-fired power station. And that endless production of fossil fuel carbon dioxide that we see is influencing our atmosphere very strongly. I think for some period, humans thought that whatever we did to the atmosphere, it would be immune. It was just so damn big, it wouldn't be influenced. But clearly we can see now that the atmosphere is responding to this output of carbon dioxide from our energy production. Now, this is a subject with quite big numbers in it. I've already said 62,000 for the number of power stations. Now I'm talking about billions of tonnes. Billions of tonnes is quite difficult to picture, really. It's very difficult to get a mental idea of what a billion tonnes of something is. And I was thinking on the other way over here of a way of trying to put that into language that might make sense in New Zealand. I thought about trying to come up with some sort of cricket analogy, and then I thought after the World Cup that might not be a very good idea. So I... I thought he said I'd pick on a rugby analogy where I'm probably on safer territory here. Um, so if you, pit, if you uh, picture Eden Park, it's a picture of a rugby field, uh, and then picture 10 of them, so picture 10 rugby fields, okay, and then imagine on each one of those rugby fields um, putting a column of coal as high as Mount Cook. So a bit more than three and a half kilometres high of coal. Just get a mental picture of that. So you've got 10 rugby fields with this great big high column of coal on it. Okay, now burn it. Put all that coal in the atmosphere. Now the coal that you just put in the atmosphere, now as CO2, is one billion tonnes. So we are doing that 37 times every year to our planet at the moment. We're putting that much CO2 into the atmosphere and it's making a difference to the atmospheric composition that you can see here. As you can tell from that clip, Gideon's speech was so informative. He's really excellent at helping people to grasp complex science with simple explanations. Again, if you want to hear the full speech, you can find it on Cawthron Institute's Vimeo channel. Our next clip features our 2013 keynote speaker, former Prime Minister Helen Clark, who talked about her role at the United Nations Development Programme. My topic tonight is around building resilience for sustainable development. And I can offer some, uh, some definitions uh, shortly, but... In essence, we understand sustainable development as being around getting that balance, uh, not having growth that destroys the environment, taking a society forward as you take an economy forward and look after your environment. But none of that matters if you don't have the basic resilience in your economic and social and other systems to withstand shock. And shock can take uh, many, many forms. One needs to think no further than the devastating impact of a series of hurricanes in Haiti or the 2010 earthquake or the Boxing Day tsunami around the Indian Ocean Rim. And no country is immune from shock, as we know, to our costs here in New Zealand with the devastation of Christchurch, now the concern of Seddon, the destabilising time that, uh, that Wellington has also had in, in recent weeks. Uh, in developed countries like New Zealand, like Japan, uh, we too can uh, find a, a devastating toll on human life in our local economies and societies from such shocks. But shocks and setbacks don't just come from the natural disasters. They can also come from economic, social or political crises and civil strife. And building resilience to this wide range of shocks is very important for sustaining uh, development, for truly sustainable development. And that's what I want to talk about uh, tonight. Now, to begin with, uh, 
talking about definitions of sustainable development, broadly in my mind is that that came out of the Brundtland Commission back in the 1980s. The Brundtland Commission was led by Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was three times elected Prime Minister of Norway. And that commission came up with the definition of sustainable development as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, a definition we commonly use in New Zealand. The concept of resilience has a basis back in the uh, scientific community, particularly uh, from ecologists. One, Crawford Stanley Holling, defining resilience as a measure of the persistence of systems and their ability to absorb change and disturbance and still maintain the same relationships between populations or other variables. But there's also a foundation in the discipline of psychology. You know, how do people cope with stress and adversity? How do they bounce back? How do they function in circumstances which may seem uh, quite, uh, quite impossible? At UNDP, we've looked at uh, resilience as being about strengthening the, the capacity of societies to anticipate, to prevent, to recover from, and to transform after shocks, crises, traumatic change of whatever uh, kind. That was former Prime Minister Helen Clark speaking at the 2013 Thomas Cawthron Memorial Lecture. Nelson was abuzz with excitement for that speech and tickets to the lecture sold out really fast. She provided such a fantastic insight into the global effort to eradicate poverty and support sustainable development. The next speaker we're going to share a snippet with you from was a real character. In 2018, British environmentalist Sir Jonathan Porritt spoke about the future of sustainability including sharing his thoughts on natural capital. It was a fascinating, funny and at times tragically sad account of the increasingly desperate state of our environment. But he also shared with the audience some of his reasons for remaining hopeful. Have a listen. At the heart of our equivalent of your MFE, DEFRA, Department of the Environment, there sits a very interesting and peculiarly powerful little committee called the Natural Capital Committee. Its chair is an out-and-out, go-get-em market man who has come to the conclusion that there is only one way of defining natural capital, as follows. Nature has no value unless you can attach a monetary value to it and unless you can extract cash from it. By costing nature... You therefore are ensuring that it commands the investment and therefore the protection that it deserves. Now I hope some of you are already beginning to feel a little bit nervous about that kind of articulation of what natural capital means. And it has opened up this whole story to a very wide range of criticism. And I'll just give you one quick quote from a very radical commentator in the UK, a guy called George Monbiot, who constantly manages to put his finger on why politicians are such a problem when they come to jumping on the bandwagon of sustainability. So he puts it like this. The idea that we can actually defend the living world through the same mindset that is destroying it today is obviously deluded. The beliefs at the heart of that dominant mindset in politics today, that nature exists to serve us, that the value of nature consists only in the instrumental value that it brings us, that this value can only be measured in cash, and that what can't be measured obviously doesn't matter. These ideas at the heart of this mindset are precisely 
what have proved to be so lethal to the rest of life on Earth. Now, I agree with every single word of that, but many parts of the natural world are already in the market. They already command a price in our market-based economies. Obviously, a hectare of land has a price, and the soil on it. A dozen oysters has a price. A 30-year-old radiata pine has a price. Well, actually, it has many prices, depending on whether we use it intelligently or really stupidly, which is what a lot of people in New Zealand tend to do. <laughs> a kilo of kiwi fruit has a price. Even a ton of CO2 has a price, albeit at a rather miserable $25 a ton. So, simple story. We can't demarketize those parts of nature that already underpin our economy. Parts of nature will continue to command a price and will continue to be of value to us through their value in this economy. But we can use economics so much more intelligently to protect the natural world so much more effectively. And the way we can do this is by acknowledging without any hesitation that there is something about the natural world, much about the natural world, that will forever be beyond price, by definition, that has an intrinsic value to it, regardless of its value to us. That was Sir Jonathan Porritt, speaker at our 2018 Thomas Cawthron Memorial Lecture. Before we wrap up, I have one more clip to share from last year's annual lecture by another Cawthron scientist, Dr Serianne Adams. Here she shares a little about her pathway into science and her passion for aquaculture. I often describe myself as an accidental scientist. I grew up on the beaches north of Auckland and this gave me a passion for the ocean. But an exchange year in Nova Scotia, Canada really opened my mind to the impact of fisheries collapse on livelihoods and ecosystems and to the potential of aquaculture. I toddled off to University of Otago with the full intentions of becoming an aquaculture farmer, but somehow I ended up upgrading my master's that wasn't going so well into a PhD, and this ultimately led me to Cawthron. Tonight I want to talk to you about aquaculture, about why I think it will play a huge role in our future, and why now, more than ever, as New Zealand looks towards a post-COVID recovery, we should back aquaculture and the science that enables it to play a key role in growing New Zealand's blue economy. What we eat and how we produce food has a tremendous impact on the planet. Aquaculture is widely recognised as one of the most sustainable forms of protein production, particularly when we compare it to terrestrial livestock production. And with our global population ageing, people are looking to seafood and the nutritional benefits that it provides to support their health and wellbeing. While globally, wild capture fisheries have remained static for the last 30 years or so, aquaculture has grown exponentially and now represents over half of all food production from the sea. It's our fastest growing primary sector. The picture in New Zealand has been different. Our wild fishery production far exceeds our aquaculture. Perhaps this is because we have naturally rich and abundant waters that we manage well. But I'd suggest that we see this trend because we haven't fully realised the potential of aquaculture in this country yet. That was our final snippet from the Thomas Cawthron Memorial Lecture last year, and it featured Cawthron's Dr Sarah Adams. 
So we hope you've enjoyed hearing some of those clips. We'll be sharing links to the full speeches via social media and you can check them out anytime, watch them for free on Cawthorne's Vimeo channel. We're not far off from announcing the 2021 keynote speaker for this year's Thomas Cawthorne Memorial Lecture. You can expect to hear from us within the next month or so. And this event is always open to the public and it's free. And continuing on from last year's event, which was fully digital, we're going to be offering a hybrid event. So there will be some tickets available to the public and you'll be able to tune in online as well. Finally, we want to remind you all to keep tabs on the Science Speaker Series we're holding at Nelson Provincial Museum this winter. We have a great series of speakers coming up for the next month or so, starting with a book reading by Cawthorne scientist Dr Nick King, Manaki and Temarama. This is aimed at school kids and it starts this Saturday at 1pm, so check out the Nelson Provincial Museum website for more details. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for more science stories from the Cawthorne Institute. Matiwa. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.